Welcome to Pop Culture Retro, which was recently voted the 15th best podcast by the residents of the Golden Years Retirement Community in Boca Raton, Florida. Each show, we'll revisit some of your favorite pop culture memories with insider and outsider perspectives. Now, please help me welcome your hosts, Ike Eisenman and Jonathan Rosen. Hello and welcome to another edition of Pop Culture Retro. I'm one of your hosts, Jonathan Rosen, along with Ike Eisenman. And today we are thrilled to welcome an actor, singer, and star of the one, one of the most iconic horror movies of all time. Please help us welcome David Norton. David, thanks so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for that intro. Yeah. <laughs> I try to live up to it. <laughs> well, you do. well, to start with, and, and we're going to get to it all, but I have to say that my kids were very excited that you were coming on, and I give you my word, more so for making it than for anything else. <laughs> they, they love that song. They have it on their Spotify, and we'll get to all that too. But to, to start, you were born in Connecticut, and I read that your parents were teachers. Uh, you and your brother went into acting. I actually saw your brother in Chicago. But when did the desire to become a performer first start for, for both of you, I guess, for you? Well, you know, I guess um, for my for my older brother and for me, uh, <laughs> you know, we just we, we went to public high school in Connecticut where we grew up, West Hartford, Connecticut. And, uh, you know, we had a, a really a wonderful uh, musical theater choir director. Uh, the late great Bill Lauer and I think he sort of uh, introduced us to um, and taught certainly taught me to sing I'm sure that, that would be the same answer for my brother uh, and kind of got introduced to being on stage hmm. which is really how it started so so you you went from Connecticut to attending the the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts I mean what, what was that experience like well, in between there, I went to the University of Pennsylvania and uh, graduated uh, there um, with no drama major. I was an uh, English literature major, and, and that's how I got interested in drama schools in England. So uh, I had applied, you know, for admission to Lambda, which was a drama school that I had done my research on. You know, we're talking about before Google, you know, this is before a lot of, uh, you know, how do I find out about drama schools? Um, so I had auditioned, uh, I ended up getting an audition in New York for Lambda. Uh, and so I went up from Philadelphia, took the train, went into New York and auditioned for this, uh, the principal of the school. And um, it was, you know, one of those early auditions, but I knew at that point, this was after, you know, I was involved in, in drama programs at Penn, uh, all undergraduate, uncredited. So you can imagine, um, going, gee, if I could only get credit for being in this play. But uh, <laughs> so I, you know, it was one of the early auditions that I prepared for. I just remember saying, you know, I'm gonna go on and with the encouragement of directors that I had worked with uh, at Penn, they said, you should give this a shot. Have you ever thought about being a professional? I went, well, uh, yeah, I mean, my brother is. And so in any case, I auditioned uh, in New York for Lambda, went there for two years in a full, it was like a three-year program, but I basically stayed two years knowing that I was, you know, not really going to be working in British uh, theater uh, and returned to New York 
you know, soon after and said, oh my gosh, here we go. Yeah, but you, you, were, you worked with like people, I, I read that you worked with like people with like Olivier in, in London? Well, no, <laughs> it's funny how this, I didn't work with them. No, certainly not. Um, but I, you know, one of the things about being a student uh, at the time were all these greats, these 20th century greats like Lawrence Olivier were on stage and we could go see them. I was working, you know, we were working in front of house in different theaters. I was at the Royal Court Theater. He was at the National Theater. I had another friend at Lambda who was an usher at the National Theater. So we would sneak in or, you know, be let in to see numerous performances of some of these great actors. I mean, John, you know, John Gielgud uh, was one, uh, certainly Lawrence Olivier we saw. And we'd see him at the rap parties too, when they'd finish a production. We'd also get in, because you know there's gonna be food involved. Yeah. So, so yeah, that was how we'd see him, see him, you know, uh, off stage as well. They didn't know us, and certainly <laughs> we were sort of invisible to them. But uh, we were in the room. God, that's that's absolutely what an amazing uh, experience mm -hmm. and opportunity that is to, to see them uh, perf uh, perform live. So now, how do you go from the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts to becoming the face of Dr. Pepper? <laughs> well, how those two things connect. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, as you talk about going back, uh, so I had returned, as I said, I, I stayed in Lambda for two years and uh, was went back, you know, to Connecticut to my parents' place going, okay, now what, what's my next plan? I'm sort of not really interested in going back to Lambda for really what would be the third and final year where they think we're ready to do public performances. So I basically went into New York and uh, auditioned for the New York Shakespeare Festival and mm. got an audition uh, with them. And they were moving their production of Hamlet from Central Park to uh, the Vivian Beaumont Theater, Lincoln Center and recasting and so on. Sam Waterston, it was his Hamlet. Joe Papp was still very much alive and running the show. And mm. uh, I auditioned uh, for... Uh, for the festival basically and was cast um, in the production that moved to Lincoln Center. So that was, you know, many years ago, gosh, we're talking about November 76, mm -hmm. 1976 for your listeners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and basically went into rehearsal for this uh, perform for this production, which was the uncut long version of, uh, of Hamlet, I mean, a four hour production, if you can imagine. And uh, there were other semi-known actors in this production like Mandy Patinkin, Stephen Lang, um, Bruce McGill, you know, and there was a whole collection of us who were supporting players, of course, uh, to this big production of Hamlet, which was really what was my first, uh, my first job, joint actors equity. Um, it was like, yeah, I'm in New York. <laughs> um, and then, of course, found out going, you know, was my big fear as my parents were going, New York, you know, it's such a big, scary place and it's so hard to get started. Well, I got started right away. Then I found out what it's like to be an unemployed actor so, and, and living <laughs> mm -hmm. in Manhattan and what that was like. And of course, you know, got an agent over the course of that production of Hamlet and was sent out for commercials back then. Um, and lo and behold, I, I uh, 
answered the, you know, just in, in, in really, I think for no other reason than just to keep my agent interested going, really, uh, they want dancers for Dr. Pepper commercials. They go, yeah, it's a good one. It's a big campaign. Uh, go, you know, go see what you can do. And I went, well, you know, if you're in New York and you call yourself a dancer, that means you're the real thing. And that certainly was not what I was, you know, billing myself as, but I went in and auditioned, um, and uh, they kind of like what they see, uh, what they saw, I should say, and got a number of callbacks and um, turned out to be the face of, uh, of their new campaign, the Be a Pepper campaign, it's 1977, that lasted four years. Wow. Those commercials just exploded. Yeah. I, I remember them at the time, like uh, loving them at the time and looking forward to when they came on, like one of the few in between the shows. Uh, truly one of the most successful campaigns in advertising I think there ever was. But you were publicly probably more recognizable than many actors of the day based on that appearance alone. And you, you made appearances with Mickey Rooney, Charlie Rich, and I saw one with even Tweety Bird. So how does it feel to suddenly be the face of a major product and in case of Mickey Rooney appearing with like legends and getting all this recognition now? Yeah, it was, uh, well, it was certainly, you know, unforeseen and unexpected. You know, the first year of the campaign, you know, you really got to see what it was like behind the scenes in terms of casting. The, the very first commercials we did were, if you can imagine, 22 day shoot for a oh, 60 wow. and two 30 second spot. So two minutes of film basically for a 22 day shoot. The reason for that, of course, was it was a, uh, a, a campaign that starts in New York and ends in San Francisco. Uh, and collecting peppers along the way was the, was the idea of kind of a Pied <laughs> Piper idea um, and showing, you know, the concept of the commercial was being a pepper was kind of cool. So, uh, but in that first year we weren't on the air. So casting was difficult. You know, they would cast locally uh, and we were in like at the St. Louis, you know, Arch and uh, shooting in Texas, of course, which was where the headquarters for Dr. Pepper was. And, you know, other landmarks, New Orleans, the French Quarter and ending up at the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. But the casting was a process that I hadn't really seen because I was on the audition side of it, of course. But uh, after that first year, I really got to see what goes into casting and go, how does anybody get cast? Because yeah. in the commercial world, you know, there's a camp, there's a committee. And then of course, there's a committee at the advertising agency level. And then of course you have to run it past your client, which at this time happened to be Dr. Pepper. And you kind of wonder how many people have, you know, final say in what these casting ultimately relates to. And, and so um, it was a real eye opener for me. And once we hit the air, yeah, it was unexpected to see the sort of feedback it was. It's like, who, is, who are those guys? Who's that guy? What's going on there? Um, and it was, you know, as I said, I wasn't quite ready or, or, or unexpectedly. But the thing was, we were on all the networks. It wasn't just being on one specific show, you know. We were on in a national blitz campaign. Uh, and so depending on, didn't matter which what network you were watching, our commercial was probably going to come on at some point. Oh man. And, and it's, it's hard. I mean, you, you know, the, they don't really do campaigns like that these days, although there are the, you know, the, those, the actors for, you know, the Geico commercials and, 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 and whatnot, but man, it was, it was so huge. And I have to admit something to you right now. 
I'm sure I wasn't the only one, but I dressed like you. I, I, your character in the commercial, I bought the black vest. I, 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 I had the khaki bell bottoms and it was the only, that's how influential this, this thing was. Um, yeah. because I, I, I didn't dress up like the Fonz. I dressed up like you. <laughs> the corporate guy. But you know, I was yeah. told and reminded the star of the commercial was the soda, you know? Yeah. And, oh, sure. Of course. That was certainly made very, you know, brought home to me. And then, you know, I would come up with like the pepper grip, which is don't, you know, just <laughs> grip, it, grip it the right way so yep. that, you know, the label shows. But it was yeah. kind of a, you know, we were, I just remember they were going, well, what's the guy look like? You know, what, having, being in those meetings of like, what's the dress? We're going to have a wardrobe session. And a <laughs> wardrobe session meant going in there and seeing, you know, a group of people deciding what the look was going to be, you know, and, and um, fortunately there were people on the crew, Sunlight Pictures, Melvin Sikolsky, who was a very famous still photographer, fashion photographer, and some of his crew were pretty hip guys. And they say, well, like, well, like what Billy's wearing, like you see those khakis depleted? <laughs> I go, yeah, I look, I look good. You know, I had no say, but I'd go, yeah, I like the khaki. Because I didn't want to look like a cartoon character, you know. I wanted to be hopefully a little hipper for that. Mm -hmm. So that's how that worked. Another yeah. committee got passed and through the committee. <laughs> well, even though it was very brief, you got a chance to work with Mickey Rooney. What was uh, what was that like? Yeah, you know, that was probably, uh, I'm trying to think which year of the four years that I was doing it. It was later, <clears throat> probably the third year or so, um, or maybe the final year. And what we were told was like, look, you know, and you, you always, you're talking, what we hear is from the agent going, Mickey's very busy, you have him for one hour. So whatever <laughs> wow. it is you wanna do. So the pressure was on, of course, to be choreographed so that when he did arrive, you could, you know, fit him right in, hopefully. And, uh, you know, things would go smoothly in the allotted time that we were gonna have. And, you know, everyone just assumed after the hour, away he was going to go. Well, it worked a little differently. Oh. Um, to say we couldn't get rid of him would be uh, a, a lie. <laughs> and that's not true because this, after all, it was Mickey Rooney. But he loved it. He was so into it. And he, you know, I, certainly uh, because our director, Melvin, was so responsive to him, and we all were. There was no lyrics. The whole campaign idea was let's see how familiar this, this jingle is. So we're not even going to sing any of the lyrics. It's going to be whistled the whole time. So we're going to whistle. And we told him, you know, uh, this was the jingle. And, and he was so fast and picked it up so quickly. And pretty soon, um, we, we were done in no time. But uh, I, I should say, we still had to have to deal with Mickey was so comfortable with his now let me tell you about my life, you know? Oh, jeez. Well, we got more to do, you know? We have more to do, Mr. Rooney. Yeah. So that's why I say, you know, facetiously, um, <laughs> we thought it was an hour, you know, two hours later. So when's lunch? We're going to hang out. No, we're, we're not. We're, we got, we got awesome. stuff to do. So. Many, he was great. Fantastic. Because you, I, I was looking on YouTube and there were at least 10 that I saw here. And, you know, there were some like more up-tempo ones on that were just for the radio also. 
did they give you like any bonuses along the way because of the huge success of this? <laughs> I'm just curious with that. No, you know, it was, um, I always got the feeling that they thought they discovered me. Um, and so that's hard to negotiate in, from a position of that, you know, going, but they were a great company. They were still kind of a regional soft drink. You know, they, they've gone on to become, you know, Dr. Pepper Snapple group. They've, you know, traded publicly in the stock exchange. But at the time, um, you know, it was really just, uh, you, you know, we knew that it was from Dallas, you know, or mm. Waco, which is really where they claimed to have been from. Um, so, uh, and, you know, I just went along with the, with the whole ride. It was a fantastic ride. I was doing personal appearances for them. Um, I was suddenly, you know, be, being considered, as I considered myself, that really the goal as a young actor is to be a full-time actor. And so mm -hmm. even though I wasn't, you know, at their beck and call every minute of the you know, year, you know, I was contracted to do certain commercials during their campaign in the summer, as well as personal appearances subject to availability, which is always important. And we had a wonderful relationship. So, um, you know, so I had four one-year contracts basically is how it worked. And, uh, and it was, you know, nobody knows going in. I don't care what anybody says. It's like, this is going to win awards, you know, the, the Clio awards or the advertising awards at the time. Mm -hmm. And they still, they still well may be, but um, yeah, they were, they were considered, you know, and became, you know, top 10 musical commercials of all time. And, and I'm just happy to be a part of it because it was fun. I mean, come on, we're talking about the seventies and early eighties. This was a good time to be a pepper. Oh man, absolutely. So we just have to ask, and I'm going to first of all say that I do, but did you even like Dr. Pepper? <laughs> yeah, you know, I did. I, it was something that I was familiar with in college in Philadelphia. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was, um, and, uh, you know, I became, uh, obviously, you know, when you become the spokesman, you're supposed to be like, you know, the expert on all things Dr. Pepper. And, and I wasn't so much about the formula, but just knew that, you know, at certain conventions and things that I was attending, sponsored by them, they were serving it hot. Like, what soft drink can you serve hot as well as cold? Yeah, and I have, I, I used to make it that way. I, I, my, I, my grandmother showed it to me for some reason, and I tasted it, and it was fantastic. I mean, yeah, my God, it, it was really delicious hot. Yes, yeah. I know. So that was new to me. That was very it's new to me. It sounds so odd. Yeah. Yeah, hot or cold. Dr. Yeah. Ten, two, yeah. four. Those are the days, you know. Yeah. So wow. About a dozen years ago, you filmed one on the New York Stock Exchange floor. How cool was it to, to revisit it after all those years? Well, that was, you know, actually not so much a commercial, but it was one of those, you know, flash mob ideas. And that was to celebrate their 125th anniversaries. So they were closing bell ceremonies at, uh, at the Stock Exchange. They invited me to attend, which I did. Um, and, and it was great. And then they had this whole idea of, we're going to do a flash mob, but we couldn't get on the floor, of course, until after this, the exchange closed. I mean, there's, you talk about Fort Knox, just try to get near the, you know, the New York Stock Exchange. And, mm -hmm. and so it was really fun to be at closing bell ceremonies. Uh, this was 2010 when they were celebrating, as I said, 12510, January 25th is their anniversary. And I remember going 125 years, the oldest, you know, and going, I remember we beat Coca-Cola by eight months or whatever, as far as, I went, oh, that's fantastic. You know, 
So it was so fun looking at that video, watching everyone's expressions. Yeah. But, and uh, you what, know, and so yeah, I don't know what else to say about that other than it was really fun personally to be on the stock exchange floor and then to be involved in this thing where suddenly we're gonna break out and some of the guys, some of the traders hung around just to see what the heck was going on. You know, we weren't asking them to be a part of it. They just wanted to stay and see. So it was like, mm. oh, well, that'll add some credibility. It looks like the stocking, you know, stock exchange floor. And they had all these dancers who were certainly born way after my campaign, you know, 2010, um, <laughs> dancers and backup dancers. And I the kids would say, you know, when did you do these commercials? I go, well, kids, this was before carbonation. Kids. This was yeah. back when, you know. <laughs> Well, I want to move on to making it, which I enjoyed at the time. It, it was derived from Saturday Night Fever and the disco craze. It starred you and among many others, you know, Ellen Travolta. How, how did that come about for you? Uh, that was, you know, I think as a result of the exposure I had, you know, with the commercials, um, the uh, producers at the time, Miller Milkis, Tom Miller, who was, you know, famous for Happy Days and Laverne Shirley and the the whole uh, Gary Marshall connection had this show, uh, which was a, you know, it was a Saturday Night Fever series spinoff, basically. So Saturday Night Fever, obviously a huge, huge hit, 7980. Um, so they had a series that they were spinning off, which was uh, going to be done at Paramount. They had the music, all music catalogs to that, you know, to be used permission with, uh, or by Paramount. So I kind of walked in on this going, they went, yeah, we want you as the disco guy. So the way the series was broken down, there was a young guy and then it was his older brother. And I was cast as the older brother. But when we got into rehearsals, they said, we want to change it up. We want you to be the guy at home. And we're going to recast, you know, do some recasting and cast a person for your older brother. Um, I said, well, that's all very well and good. But what about the song? Because I was really interested in the exposure that I had with Dr. Pepper getting in the studio, having to audition for the Dr. Pepper jingle, even though I was the face of it going, wait a second, I'm an actor. I, you don't just go in and dub my voice. So I was very keen to try to audition for the song, which was the title song for the series, Make It. Um, and they were, you know, they could do anything they wanted they uh, arranged for me to meet with the songwriters uh, for for the song, uh, who were, you know, Freddie Perrin, Dino Fakaris. They had had Peaches and Herb, Shake Your Groove thing, Reunited. They were already on the charts. So I had to go in and meet those guys and say, you know, because they had somebody, another band already in mind to record making it for the TV series. And, and I was able to sort of not only talk my way in, but sing for them too. And they said, well, you know, it's, where are you from? I went, I'm from Connecticut. And the guy said, well, that sounds a little Connecticut. I went, well, I went to college in Philly. He goes, give me Philly. I want Philly. I went, okay, make it. I mean, it's like, what, what does that mean? I don't know. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's an interesting direction. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just try it. And it, it worked out. And so we recorded the song. This time, in fact, it was like this This time of year was over the Thanksgiving break uh, 
way back in 1978, recorded the song in their studios in Studio City. And uh, uh, then it was able to be released when the series premiered. Uh, and the, the series didn't make it, no more making it, as we were saying, but the song mm -hmm. just wouldn't stop and, and went you know, to top 40, went to number five. So it was crazy. Well, just on that note, you know, it, it really is one of the best theme songs really out there. I, a couple of years ago, I remember I posted on social media, like, you know, what's the best theme song? And several people answered making it you know, of, of the shows. So what's that like? To, already, the show is canceled and you're still going out promoting the song afterwards. Well, yeah, it had, you know, I was, I suddenly had a record contract with RSL, which was with the Robert Stigwood organization, you know, who had this little group called the Bee Gees, I think you've heard of. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and so um, it was not something, another one of an unexpected treat, uh, especially, and my sort of the moral of this whole story for my career was, whatever you're planning, just, you know, it's not quite going to go that way, you know? So be open to, 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 to taking it however it goes. And, and, uh, and so I did. I had this song, this record. I was on, you know, American Bandstand. And, and Paramount, because they had the rights, they put it in the movie Meatballs. So a lot of people with Bill Murray, a lot of people thought this song making it was from the movie Meatballs, which it mm. does appear in. I go, not really. It, it's from... <laughs> It's from these, you know, from the series by the same name. And and so they would change the, the jackets. You know, this came out as a 45, you know, who has 45s anymore, right? And so it would say, from the hit series, making it, no wait. From the hit movie, Meatballs, no wait. It's, it's just gonna continue to kind of, you know, just reappear in some, some form or other. So it was a really kind of an unexpected treat that it continued. Mm -hmm. Do you do you think if the series had come out a couple of years earlier, when Saturday Night Fever actually hit, it would have made a difference in that? Well, you know, uh, my well, my feeling is, you know, our, our the first, you know, it's about TV ratings, you know, and we came on, we premiered on ABC after Mork and Mindy, you know, it was like a Thursday night, eight o'clock is Mork and Mindy. We came on after that, as I recall, and you know, it's. It was obviously we had a huge lead in. Mark and Mindy was one of the number top one, two, three, four, five TV series at the time. So any lead in that uh, the show after is going to be great, which is what Making It did. It had huge numbers. Well, then they said, time to move Making It. So they moved the series over to Friday nights and uh, we got up against some very serious competition. And that was the end of it. It was like, well, that shows out. I mean, so I think... No matter what you say, if the network believes in the show, if they position it correctly and they stay with it, um, you know, you have a very good chance. If they don't, or there's a change of some, you know, executives, which there was at the time there and, and my subsequent experience uh, with my sister, Sam, another a CBS. Uh, We're going to ask about that too. <laughs> later. Yeah. But if there was, then, you know, you better have friends at the top or the show uh, is in jeopardy is really the lesson that I learned. Mm. Well, let's talk about American Werewolf. Uh, one of the okay. great, <laughs> one of the great horror comedies of all time. I mean, you could you could see the influence on later works. Uh, this hybrid of uh, genres, and I read that Edgar Wright was influenced. It you know the director of Shaun of the Dead. You know he was influenced by American Werewolf. Uh, it's like a balancing act, really. And American Werewolf like did it so well. 
you know, to covering the skills and still honoring the the comedy and still honoring the horror genre. Uh, how did you wind up getting that part? Do we want to, you know? Uh, let's see. At the time, this was 1980, so it's the fall of 1980. You know, I certainly uh, making it was still was on the trip. Making they still play making it. I hear it and I get texts from my friends going serious right now, serious radio making it. But um, John Landis was looking for the guys, as he calls them. He and Rick were calling them the boys. Who who are we going to get to cast as our two lead, you know, boys? Um, and so he was on a search, and he was searching as well as you know, fielding requests from all the guys from Animal House who wanted to play this, you know, part. Um, so I was really, I, I had a meeting. He was familiar with who I was as a result of the commercials for Dr. Pepper. And he was looking for those those guys uh, to play those two roles. And I don't think he had in mind which part was which, but uh, from my own perspective, I had a chance, you're gonna meet John Landis, you got a drive on at Universal. I mean, it was a big deal to get a drive on pass at Universal. I go, wow, I'll go by the, you know, the Universal tour, we'll go right by my car. I mean, it was really kind of an exciting moment. And I was waiting in his office and suddenly this young guy comes out and it's like, we're, you know, I, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what John Landis looked like. Or, and we had a long conversation with a lot of humor and John's a very funny guy. And he said, well, I want you to read this script. And he opens his desk and gives me a, copy of the script she says and here's my personal office number call me tomorrow and that was it um <laughs> i read it and you know it says in like one line david turns into a werewolf turn the page you go oh you kind of almost go by it going what's that about um an interesting story something that he wrote when he was 21 years old and now because of his success with the blues brothers and animal house he was going to get a chance to do his I don't want to call it pet project, but his movie, <laughs> his werewolf movie. Uh -huh. And so I talked to, you know, I called him the next day and he goes, well, do you want to be a werewolf? I went, sure. You know, that sounds, yeah. Um, I, I wasn't that off, you know, handed about it. I knew it was a John Landis movie. You know, this would be fantastic. I enjoyed the script. I thought the story was, it's about the story. It's a, it pulls together. Um, as far as what the you know the 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 undead part, the part that's you know the supernatural, so that'll we'll talk about. He goes, all right, I need you to get right over and meet Rick Baker in his shop. And Rick Baker, and where's he located? Here's his address. He had this rented space, and he says, because I need him to meet you, and we got to get started on the makeup. So that was October, nineteen eighty. I go over to Rick Baker's off his little rented studio space with all these look like high school kid assistants. And he goes, what are you playing? I go, I'm playing uh, David Kessler. He goes, I feel sorry for you. Come on. Oh, wow. <laughs> what, what does that mean? You know, and, and uh, we started with the preliminary makeup. The reason I mentioned the dates is because this is the start to finish on this project. I meet John Lannis in October. Then I meet Rick Baker soon after. We start the preliminary makeup. We all go to London in February, 1981. The movie's released in August, 1981. So, you know, start to finish about eight to 10 months. And wow. 
all done, um, done and released. And we'll see you at Times Square on the 21st of, uh, of August, 1981 for the opening. I mean, it was a whirlwind thing and it was particularly um, because there were other movies coming and John's, you know, had the enthusiasm as he still does to want this special project of his released and uh, that's what it took. Gosh, man, that's that's incredible. I mean, that is very, very fast. It's hard for people to understand that. Um, but, you know, were you at all intimidated by, you know, working with John or was it just, a, did he? Sure, was a, you know, yeah. I mean, who, you know, of course, um, you know, you kind of want to know right away, uh, you know, what, what about the other parts? You know, who's playing Jack? Uh, who's playing Jack, my buddy? Uh, who's playing the girl, Jenny? Who's playing... You know, he goes, well, that's, that'll, you know, you all find that out. You know, you'll find that out when you get over there. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I don't know if the parts were even cast at that time. You know, I mean, John uh, did it his way, you know, as, as he tells, and we've done sort of panels subsequently to find out how much of this was all going to come together because it looks so planned out. And, but no, a lot of it's, you know, uh, one wing and a prayer that you get uh, things that turn out well. Um, be just it just happens to be a lucky break. I mean, mm. not just for me as an actor, but for the whole thing, the whole production, everything along the line just sort of falls into place. And and that was one of those situations. The whole production. Um, I, I mean, I'm not to, I'm not trying to say Jonathan Landis doesn't deserve credit. His very keen eye is a wonderful, probably one of the best directors I've ever worked with extremely decisive that's so great because coming from commercials where everybody's going to have a meeting about you know mm -hmm. uh, suddenly there's a guy going yes no no yes you know going wow this is fast to the point even when rick baker you know is presenting some of the his makeup on set we'd shoot and rick would and john would john Lennis would go boom got it great and Rick would go whoa wait wait a minute this took four months to make. We got to keep shooting. And John would go, why? Why? Why do we have to keep shooting? You know, <laughs> you go, because it took so long to make? No, because why? Because, you know, that's just the way John's fast. Rick is an artist and a, you know, a perfectionist and more methodical. And then I was in the middle going, I, I'll do it again if you want, you know? Uh -huh. um, so it was just a, a, a really fun experience. And as I said, Jenny Agater was, uh, couldn't have been nicer. She was a good sport being among all these crazy Americans making a movie <laughs> over there. Uh, Griffin was, you know, and I got along great. Turns out we had mutual friends and relatives in Connecticut and New York. And what are the chances, you know, when you, when you meet somebody that you're gonna have so much in common. So uh, as I said, it was lightning in a bottle. Man, well, you guys, you and you and Griffin had an incredible chemistry together. So you didn't know each other prior, but you realized you had connections to each other. Yeah, you know, you you well, when you you get on set or you go, and here we are. There's only like there are two Americans in the movie and a couple behind the scenes. There's like four work permits, <clears throat> you know, John, Rick, and us, mm. and so that sort of throws you together. Certainly, I think that certainly helped. Um, but, you know, I mean, if if either one of us was, you know, n not into it, um, 
you know, it would certainly, I think it could be, have had a different result. And my, my point is that, you know, we were, we both knew uh, what a wonderful opportunity it was for us. And it also happened that, you know, we were uh, able to get along and have a similar sense of humor and, you know, do stuff that's, you know, you know, not be, just play along with the game. And the game is, Let's do the best we have we can do and have fun while we're doing it. And John's John set that that stage. Mm. Yeah, I I read that at the time that they were pushing Landis to do cast Ackroyd and Belushi. Did, was that any that true? Or did you hear that at the time? Well, I certainly didn't hear it at the time. Um, you know, he had his pick of who he wanted. You know, so that would really be a question for him. Um, I do know that British Equity was very reticent in giving us permission to shoot it there. And you know, from you imagine the entire crew, all the post production, everything was going to be done there, as well as all the supporting actors who are also members of British Equity, and they were still holding out, going, "Well, you need to audition f actors for those lead roles." Ah. And, and he goes, oh, "Well, okay. I mean, I'll I'll do that if it, if it'll keep us on schedule." We're thinking. Meanwhile, the makeup's already been done. You know, all the measurements, all the preliminary stuff. But go ahead, you know, go. which is kind of funny looking back going, yeah, they're going to see actors for our roles, but we've already got the makeup <laughs> in, in the process. And uh, and we did. So. And I but I know he was scouting other locations. I mean, going to scouting other countries. <laughs> you know, that that's 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 the kind of. Uh, what we, but he had in mind, he wanted to shoot in London. Uh, that's where it takes place. He'd scouted a lot of stuff, and uh, that's where we, we shot it. Well, speaking of makeup, you, I read that you said that it took like 10 hours a day. I mean, what was the process like that you had to go through each, each time? Well, you know, we that, that transformation scene, which is the big makeup for me, was done at the end of the movie. So we shot everything, the entire movie, wrapped everybody, and just had the transformation left at the end. Um, Primarily so that Rick would have everything that he needed done in at in that time. I know that his arrangement with John was, I need as much time as I can get, you know, and whatever, and I need a you know blank check for whatever expenses he needed. Um, remember, this is 1981, so you know, need a small little check, I guess. But uh, in any case, we shot that transformation at the end, and it was for me, you know, thinking I had this role. You know, you always look at the at the schedule going, okay, where's this? Where's this happen? When does this happen? And where's the transformation? It'd be like day whatever it was, 26 or day at the end. So the mountain was still, I still had to climb the mountain at the end. Um, I wasn't done by any means. And the process was very tedious, you know, long hours, 10 hours is what I was trying to remember, a day in makeup with Rick. Uh, mm. And then finally going out on a set for a late crew call, a minimal crew to shoot these scenes with John, with Rick going, please shoot longer. And John going, I got what I need. No, no, go longer. No. You know, and me being in the floor <laughs> going, hey, uh, can I get out of the floor here, do you think? You know, yeah, a lot of that stuff. <laughs> How much fun was it for you? I mean, you had been a student just several years before in London, and now you're coming back as, you know, a performer in a major production. Yeah, it was it was a thrill. You know, London was not unfamiliar to me, having been to Lambda five years, you know, previously. And 
And now I go, you know, now I could actually go out to dinner. Hey, thank you for diem, you know? Uh, yeah. Now, now you can go out and actually maybe go have something to eat somewhere or, you know, so on. So it wasn't exactly, you know, a complete unknown experience to me. I mean, I even picked up a car driving around the streets, you know, a little mini on the, you know, on the right side drive going, okay, this is kind of exciting. Um, having lived there, you know, before I was somewhat familiar with it. So it was very exciting. And London's, a, you know, really a, a top five city in the world to me. Um, mm. It's fantastic. Uh, I think one of the reasons probably the movie continues to hold up is it's London. So there are a lot of those locations still there. They look very much the same. You know, the marquees are different, of course, but the landmarks are there. And uh, you could conceive that, you know, the movie could be something that you could shoot today. Hmm. Well, I've worked with a lot of animals and I, I actually did a, a Disney project where there was a lot of work with wolves. And I got to say, it was a bit unnerving because they're kind of sketchy. So what was that scene like for you and how were they to work with? Um... <clears throat> yeah, I think sketchy was not a term, I think, invented. And... <laughs> yeah. But that explains it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Good. You had, uh, I, I'm, I'm glad it's consistent here. <laughs> it's extremely consistent. You know, for one thing, uh, you know, we were shooting on the, on the, in the zoo, Regents Park Zoo. This was a set that was built, you know, as a cage, of course. And, um, and, you know, there's, you don't really get a reassurance from anyone that owns wolves, whatever they, these were, you know, they're not domesticated animals, you know, and yep. the only thing, the thing that they did say to me and to us was, well, they've been fed. Yeah. <laughs> That's supposed to be, yeah, like you say, reassuring. <laughs> they go, hey, what do you know? How about that? And, and yeah. you know, the reality was, I go, well, get ready for one take, John. I just remember going, this is a one time, come on, tell me. And I remember the sun setting, you mm. can't save you, but not really, because they've got a whole grip truck full of lights. They can make it light for day if they want. But the uh, but Rob pa Bob Painter, the late Bob Painter, who was a cinematographer, was going like, that's right, you tell him just one take, you know? Because I didn't want to do it more than once. They go, what am, there's no door to go out. Yeah, you wake up, you see the wolves, and then you go out the back, go up and over the wall, you know, up and over the cage. I go, really? Okay, I'll try it. Let's try it once. <laughs> Hope you get wow. it. And they did. And, you know, so many times in the course of the film where situations would come up, uh, there were so many one takes throughout, not just from terms of performance for me, or, but they just, things always worked on the show. You know, mm. things always worked. In Piccadilly Circus, there's a big wreck, a big crash in Piccadilly Circus. That was done at like pre-dawn without a curtain, you know? Let's just do it. All the stunt guys converge on action, crash. We'll say, we got it, and watch them disperse all in about three minutes going, was there just a big wreck? In yeah, there was, but it's gone. We got it, you know? Man, that's, that's, that's amazing. Isn't that wild? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the, the special effects were, I mean, absolutely groundbreaking on that movie. When when you saw them, did you just, did you think at the time like this movie is going to be like beyond anything that's been done before? Well, you you know, I 
you know, we knew it was special, you know, I mean, there wasn't anyone I could call and say, hey, this Rick Baker guy, what, what's Rick Baker like, you know, I was one of his, you know, early pioneers. Mm. Was, yeah, we tortured the boys, He's he admitted, and, you know, in some quote I saw him, was, yeah, you did torture us, you know, as far as, you know, we were some of the first for him, uh, and it won him his first Academy Award. But uh, there was, you know, we knew, even with John screaming, more blood, I need more blood, you know, guys coming in with more blood. Um, we knew that it was obviously special. This makeup was unbelievable. And, and uh, you know, seeing it sort of slowly coming together right before your eyes, it was very special. So, you know, looking back, yeah, we knew we were in the presence of, of greatness with Rick. And John uh, knew him too, because they worked together. So it was like, just wait, you guys wait. Meaning us, Griffin and, and, and me to wait and see what this is gonna look like. Now go act, you know, which was, uh, you know, our challenge. Well, you kind of touched upon it a little bit there because I, I read after there was some tension between Landis and Baker during the course of the shooting. Did you see any of that at all or did you experience well, it? Well, not, you know, I mean, it would just really, I think what I was touching on was just how, um, you know, how much coverage John would need. You know, John is a pretty economical director. You know, he knows what he's doing and he's, uh, if, you know, and Rick and he would have discussions about, you know, what angle he was going to use, or a storyboarded scene, particularly in the transformation, um, and you know the challenge for for Rick was to make you know Griffin look each time more decomposed and rotting away, um, in and you know and not hidden, but in you know in, in an apartment lighting, um, broad daylight, or whenever. Uh, so those obviously challenges nobody really knew until you know you get those dailies back in film what it was going to look like. And that was their challenge. But uh, there was a lot, had to be a lot of trust involved in both with Rick and John. And, you know, as an actor, you don't get involved, particularly, you know, we were, we didn't have a lot of say, you know, you don't get a lot of say, you just kind of sit there and go, what's next, you know, challenge me now. I mean, you know, that's, keep in mind, we were young guys going like, you know, you got me. You got me for this whole movie. So whatever you need, I'm going to try it and hopefully it'll work. Oh, well, so obviously it did. But because of this movie, you got in trouble with Dr. Pepper. Was it because it was a horror no, movie? You know, I, I, I'd love to find out where that came from. I mean, you know, who, who knows? Um, but no, uh, you know, I, I had just remember the conversation that I had had uh, with the creative director at the advertising agency who basically got got credit for the campaign of, you know, this whole Be a Pepper campaign. And just saying, you know, four years for me was enough, sort of like four years of college. I'm thinking back going, maybe I could have had a 10 or 15 year relationship with that, you know? Uh, mm. But it was up to me at that point to just say, you know, I think, I think I'm done. I, I don't know what else. And he goes, you know, really, you want to be done? And he was like, okay. <laughs> so, so I'm really thinking that I, you know, uh, initiated the, the oh, choice. It was you. You're the one that ended it? Huh. Yeah, I mean, because the reality is, who doesn't want, you know, even in those in their different times, certainly in the 80s, if you're in a hit movie or and you're and you're under contract with, a, you know, an advertiser, who doesn't want to ride those coattails? 
I mean, you can look today. It's, yes, it's a different world, different times, but there's still strategies involved in business. So I, I don't imagine it was any different. Um, you know, some somebody thought, oh, well, yeah, there's there must be a morality clause. I go, whose morality? You know, um, no, there, there wasn't. Uh, in fact, they came back to me a couple of years later to try one of their uh, other stockings. You know, when it was, you know, the blue sugar-free, is it sugar-free Dr. Pepper? Is it? Yeah. And I did a couple of those commercials. And and then they came back in 2010 for the 125th anniversary. So, so I've, you know, I've always had a really good relationship with Dr. Pepper. And, um, you know, I, it, it was, a mis I wouldn't say a mistake, but something I would rethink going back to 1980, 81, going, mm. are you really done with them? Because, you know, uh, you, you, you're never really done with them. I mean, obviously, we're talking about it now here in 2020. What is it, two? Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man, I, for, I forget all the time myself. <laughs> we, we just did the 40th anniversary. We're just talking about that. So what, what do you feel like it, it still holds up? People still love the movie. What do you think it, you know, owed to its longevity? Uh, I think it has to do with the, you know, practical makeup, you know, versus CGI. I think mm -hmm. that's been, you know, mm -hmm. what I've, the feedback that I've, I've gotten, you know, over the years is if you want to see a transformation or if you're into werewolves versus, you know, whatever, vampires, I mean, there's always this sort of competition. I'm not really, I'm sort of, I have to be in the werewolf camp, I guess. But the reality <laughs> is for practical makeup, the standard is very high. And I think people point to American Werewolf in London. Um, that's been my experience. Not only pointing to it as seeing it, but you know, the number of people that I've met who wanted to become uh, special effects, makeup artists. Uh, Rick started, you know, legions of people who looked into it going, that is so fascinating. They had never seen anything like it. They need to find out how to do it. And maybe they too can be successful uh, at it. And um, so that's probably the number one thing. I think the fact too is that it's a John Landis film. He has a huge following. Many of his movies, you know, uh, were comic, you know, in Kentucky Fried Movie and Animal House and, and these guys, you know, but the Blues Brothers, you know, has huge musical influences thriller i mean come on michael jackson saw this film and he's ready to be a cat, you know <laughs> with rick doing the makeup and john directing and 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 so you know he himself john has a huge following and so i think you know the makeup is practical makeup versus cgi and that debate people want to see say well do you want to see practical makeup go see this movie? so i think mm. that's really helped yeah. Well, well there's a mention. The oh, I'm sorry. Or, yeah. Were you asked to be in the thriller video? I'm just curious because you got Landis and Baker. No, I know. I was going like, "Hey, Michael, did you did, you, did my invitation blow off the porch there? What 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 happened?" Because <laughs> I used to make the I used to make the joke, going, "You know, I got this guy. They call him the King of Pop, and he's 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 following me around. I do Dr Pepper. He does a Pepsi campaign." Come on, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm a werewolf, and now he's going to be a werecat. <laughs> you know? um, but you know the truth is, he saw you know the brilliance of uh, what those guys were doing, and and came up with that 
they came up with that. But no, I didn't want to be a zombie, you know. <laughs> well, <clears throat> and and uh, but it would have been fun. I'm not sure I would have made it through the dance audition, you know. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> well, there's a <clears throat> excuse me, there's a mention on IMDb about a remake of American Werewolf in London with John's son Max Landis directing. Have you heard anything about that? And would you be up to appearing in it? Uh, yeah, you know, I don't know that that's really going to happen. Um, mm. My my feeling is, as my you know, and I've sort of amended my my feeling about it was that, you know, why do a remake of anything? You know, it's like I always think, come on, where's the originality? Come up with your own idea, you know, right. and try to tell try to tell that to the you know the people that greenlight projects. You go, no, we want to make more money. But the reality for me is if they were to do a remake and you know what would happen is ultimately people would say, did you see the original? Which for me just extends, you know, the legacy of the original American Werewolf in London for another generation. You know, two mm -hmm. generations, three generations from now, they go, what? Werewolf transformation? What are you talking about? I would think it would sort of guarantee that there'll be new kids discovering this film um, if there were to be made a remake because they'd have it to be a tall order to be as good, I think. Yeah, oh, for sure, oh, for sure. You, you still get a lot of fans reach out to you because of this? Yeah, yeah, uh, it, you know, it, yes, I mean, I, I've been, I've traveled, you know, all around and met people um, who, you know, turn out in droves if there's a horror convention of sorts or, you know, um, and it's, it's one of those films that seems to put on their list. Horror fans are very loyal, which is fantastic. If you have something to promote, or, you know, they will uh, check it out. And I found that, um, you know, no matter what their thing is, if it's werewolves or, as I said before, you know, you know, vampires or whatever, if they want, they always seem to stop by my table and say hi, because they got to get something from American Werewolf in London. Mm. Well, yeah, do you, do you, have you, have there been any, any fan events where the uh, whole cast has gotten together, all of you guys and John? We're working on it. We're oh, yeah. working okay. on it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. I think it would be great. It would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's funny, Jenny. Jenny's over in London. Griffin Dunn's uh, east or west coast. I have a place in the east coast. I'm on the west coast. Um, John and Rick. I don't know so much about Rick. I mean, he's promoted his book and sort of did his tour, but he loves creating at home and making, you know, creatures and things. Um, and John's busy all the time. But yeah, it would be wonderful to have some sort of reunion. Um, as I say, yeah, we're kind of working on it. Maybe 2023, that could happen. Oh, I hope mm. so. I do, do want to briefly ask you about, you mentioned before, my sister, Sam. A lot of fans. I love that show, too. It's another show that they kind of screwed you guys over by moving you around all the time. There, some of your oh, that's, that's the nature, you know? Yeah. I mean, people, people, you know, forget that I remember, you know, I have done, I did like an episode of Seinfeld, and that show was in the same boat back in the, you know, the year that I did it. No guarantees, you know, they were going, is this show going to catch on? You know, well, I guess it did. Um, and yeah, my sister Sam was one of those with uh, 
you know, Pam Dauber, you know, at the helm, thinking she's the darling of CBS, you know, come on, CBS. And, and what's that relationship like? Because you have to have relationships uh, where they, um, that the, the, you know, the network executives believe in you as a person, as well as, as you know, the show. Uh, I think that's still today. I mean, it's, it's really important. So we thought we'd be well protected. Um, and, you know, as, as, it, as it turned out, it, it wasn't, didn't go that way. And so, you know, you got to have friends at the top if you want to stay on the air. That's just been a long time. I mean, I didn't come up with that. That's been a that's been around for a long time. That sort of idea. Yeah. I'll ask you. I'll ask you quickly about your Disney movie, The Midnight Madness, which was Disney, not Disney. They didn't put their name on it at the time. Uh, you had Michael J. Fox's first appearance. Some of your memories with that. Just a well, you know, it's a light, you know, comedy. It's an all night treasure hunt, which was the original title of the show. Uh, the thing is, it's a night shoot. I don't care what you're making. If you're going to work six to eight weeks at night, good luck. I mean, I personally am not a night owl. You know, when you have a five or six o'clock p.m. call and you're going to work till dawn, you know, um, good luck trying to have a life, you know, <laughs> or, then, or going home and trying to sleep in the day. You know, I, I'm just not cut out for that. So that was the big challenge of that movie. And then, you know, I'll come to the weekend we didn't work on weekends. So you're going to turn around and maybe have like a normal weekend. But don't forget, Monday night, you're back at work. You know, yeah. so that, that was a challenge. Uh, I think we did the best we could as far as, um, and, and I've, you know, again, meeting people at these shows, um, a lot of them come out and go, you know, it's my guilty pleasure. Do you have anything from Midnight Madness? I go, come on, be proud of it, darn it. You know, this is if that's your thing, I mean, it'd be nice to have a DVD release and maybe they are, uh, maybe that would be something. But at the time, yeah, it was rated PG, which, you know, previously the black hole was their big release at Disney, which was, you know, something that they had to live down with. They had only had G rated films, you know, so suddenly we are, we're a PG, PG 13 rating. And like now we've had to come out under a different, label and you kind of wonder what that was about but um it was, a, it, was fun. it is on amazon you can watch it on amazon now amazon prime it is oh fun. yeah yeah i mean it's fun it's light there was a lot of us co-directors you know the two writers are co-directors so it was sort of like you build a railroad you start on the west coast and you start on the east coast and we'll meet somewhere in the middle i mean that was the whole plan of attack on that film and we ended up in downtown Los Angeles at the Bonaventure Hotel, where a number of movies have since been uh, made. And that's where we've, you know, had the major finale of that film done. So it was, um, it was a good, good try, you know, good try and people <laughs> will find it. I did got a lot of people going, we still watch it, you know, our kids love that movie. So. Well, I mentioned I, I did see your brother in Chicago, and you seem like you'd be such a natural thing for musical. A musical. Have you ever, ever thought about doing that? Uh, doing that production? No, a musical. Oh, Just a musical. Yeah, I mean, I I still you know musical theater was my my background in college. You know, I had I've done a number of shows and like them. Um, you know, as you get older, you kind of go, no, wait a second. You want to do eight shows a week? 
<laughs> raise your hand, you know, if you're 70 and older. And the thing was, I just saw where, uh, uh, who was Hal Linden has been on Broadway and he just came off a show. He's 93. Oh, it, it baffles me because that was Come never on. appealing to me. Yeah. Eight shows a week was never an appealing idea. You know, I like doing my gig and going home and being done, you know, at a certain point. So that's, yeah, that's, that's incredible. So that, well, I mean, yeah. you, you have had such a long and successful career and you continue to, uh, you continue to work. Do you have anything coming up, uh, coming up next? Well, there are always things, you know, I made a mistake years ago of talking about a project that never turned out <laughs> ever happened, you know? Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, there are always those, there's always those that are sort of like, we're just 60% away from what, you know? We're 70% and closer. Like, what, what is this, like a GoFundMe movie page? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, there's always, uh, there's always stuff around. But, you know, can you talk about, do you have a release date for me? It's like, do you have a start date? Do you have financing? Do you have, you know, who's in yeah. place? Um, just know that I'm not done. I'm still a card-carrying member of the Screen Actors Guild uh, after, SAG-AFTRA, I have to call them. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I mean, it's <laughs> it's a crazy game now. The, the rules have changed. You know, some of us are still, still uh, you know, have a sense of humor about it, which is what it takes, I think. And um, so, you know, who knows? I do want to say, though, that you what sold me on coming on your show was uh, that you had interviewed one of my heroes, Paul Williams. Mm. He's, you know, was, I still don't see it. I'm sure he was a great interview, but uh, I'm going to look him up. In fact, we, we interviewed Hal Linden as well, by the way. Oh, you did? <laughs> yes. We had oh, Hal. Fantastic. Yes. Well, that's great. Well, David, again, we, we sincerely thank you for coming on. It's well, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for your persistence. I said, this is a show I need to do because I, you know, in our communications, you know, you, I would say, well, I'm going to be back on the West Coast on the 15th. I heard from you on the 16th. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's all it took. I went, this guy needs to be, you know. <laughs> I'm a fan. Needs be, this needs to be addressed now. So I'm happy that this worked out. And right I the iron is hot. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but again, this this has been Pop Culture Retro. I'm Jonathan Rosen with Ike Eisenman. And again, a very special thanks to David Norton. And please subscribe. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Retro, where no one was hurt during the making of this podcast. 